You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan and Bram Conley. Hey, Brad, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing great, man. So this is, yeah, by the good. way, Bram Connolly from Australia, and Bram spent some time in Australian Special Forces, spanned about, what, 22 years total, Bram? Yeah, that's right. Yep. 15 in Special nice Forces. You, yeah. Nice to meet you, Brad. Are you finally back at the house, or? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, because you were doing a lot of humanity work here lately, I understand. I've been working with Team Rubicon for almost the last year uh, here and there. Oh, that's awesome. I like to be just in the trenches with them. Uh, in fact, they, they put me in charge of uh, operations on the operation I was on last winter in Gatlinburg, and uh, I'd rather be out running a chainsaw. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. You started off in the Navy, and I, I've read, the, of course, a lot of your bio, and you started off back in 1988, and I guess you came into the CBs initially out of high school, or was that a career change along the way in the Navy, or how did that all work? I did. I, I joined up into the CBs without having any idea what it was. Yeah. That was straight out of high school. And um, I, I guess uh, just the, the thought of the uh, construction field within the Navy was strange enough to be appealing. My dad was in the Navy for 23 years, and he was flying on as a crew chief on seaplanes. And so I knew a little bit about CBs and stuff from him just talking a little bit, but not a whole lot. Yeah, uh, well, anybody who's seen John Wayne in a fighting CBs has uh, kind of captured the essence of it. Yeah, exactly. You went on, I guess, 11 different uh, deployments to Afghanistan, or was there other deployments outside of Afghanistan, or was there... Oh, yeah. No, Afghanistan was just my last deployment of my career. Uh, I've, I've been all over the place uh, in the other 10 deployments. Yeah, I, I could list them all, but it takes a while. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> my first recollection of CVs was in Somalia in 1993. The guys basically building half the base that the Australians were deployed to. I think that was uh, Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 40, which was my battalion. I was one of 13 people in that battalion, not in Somalia. I was oh. stuck on the island of Palau. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, there was some uh, some good guys there. Got some great memories of that. Of that trip and of the Americans in particular, and our first uh, our first meeting with with Americans, you know, on our, on our first deployment in you know since Vietnam. So. Oh yeah, yeah. I I didn't hear too many good things about uh, that that Somalia deployment. They were a little bit upset at me because I was in a tropical paradise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't you didn't miss that much. It was a tough one. <laughs> So after uh, spending your last deployment there in Afghanistan, kind of tell us a little bit about what happened there that caused you to then start this whole pilgrimage uh, on the Camino de Santiago, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, yeah, that, that was Camino de Santiago. Okay. So uh, now Afghanistan, you know, it was it was a tough deployment, but I wasn't uh, I was in special forces. I was just kind of a regular guy. Uh, I, I did a lot of missions and. Uh, Ghazni province is not too many people had heard about it, but it was not a very nice place and it, it got continually worse. So uh, over the course of my nine month employment, I, I did 69 missions and it just got worse and worse. And, uh, you know, that that wears you down. It, it certainly leaves a mark on you, that constant pressure. And uh, uh, 
so you know, I, I retired a couple of years after I returned from there, and all my plans fell through. I wasn't sure what to do with myself, and I was in a very typical downward spiral. And um, so one day I just ended up on a one-way flight to uh, Europe and threw on a backpack and started walking. So was it part of the transition cycle then, the coming back and really trying to assimilate and the difficulty of trying to do that? Absolutely. The, uh, yeah, the difficulty after that many years of wearing a uniform and being in a military organization, I, I found that fitting into just being a, a regular civilian was incredibly difficult. It, it just it didn't work for any number of reasons. Yeah, we've had a couple of guests. As a matter of fact, our last two have been on the topic of transition. And I wrote a book about it as well, following my own military transition and a number of years being out in the private sector. It's not only a struggle in terms of just trying to assimilate in terms of maybe having spent deployments away from family and in different environments and combat zones, but it's also as much of trying to have the private sector understand who you are as an individual that served the military because many of them have never had a family member that served or just not that close to it to understand why an individual would do that and what they come away with as they bring back into the, the private workplace. And there are a lot of good traits that we bring back. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I found that uh, I had little to nothing in common with, with uh, a lot of the people. And, you know, I, I came back to a very rural part of Ohio. There's not many veterans and uh, I, I simply had nothing in common, nothing to talk about. Oh. Looked at me like a weird guy. So did you grow up on a farm and everything out there as well? No, I grew up just outside of Columbus. Um, but, yeah, always always around farm country. I've always called this place home. Yeah. So. After you separated and you couldn't assimilate, we had a guest on that talked about taking a year off after coming back to really find yourself and to determine what your purpose or passion really is, it's hard to try to to take in everything that's going on back here in the private sector that's at a much slower pace, obviously. And so what in the world possessed you to all of a sudden decide to go on a 500-mile trek? Uh, well, you know, I, I just wasn't sure what to do with myself. I, I ran out of interest in, in even trying to find something to do with myself. So I decided, you know, what the heck, I'll just... Walk to this uh, ancient Camino de Santiago and see where it leads, uh, if anywhere. And I was in a pretty bad state of mind, as you can imagine. I, I, I simply really didn't care where I was going to go. Right. Tough when you you have that separation from, you know, what can, I can only imagine was a high-performing team and you had a lot of responsibility and then suddenly you separated from that and, and now there's just, uh, there's just you and your thoughts and that can be pretty rough. Oh, uh, Brown, that, that is a huge part of it. You lose your identity. And um, mm. yeah, after spending over 22 years, uh, it, and most of the later half of that, I was I didn't have a first name. I, my name was Senior. And um, uh, then just overnight, that's gone. It's vanished. Yeah. And you're not even sure how to dress yourself every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think what Sebastian Younger talks about that in, in Tribe, in his book Tribe, and he you know, he goes on about how you're in those high-performing teams and you've got this all this responsibility and you go from being, you know, the big fish in a little pond to suddenly a little fish in a sea, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Yes. Yeah. So that that's what I was facing. That's what I was going through. And uh, I, I, I probably could have handled it better. I, I could have probably uh, looked for some different avenues. Uh, but, you know, the, the Camino actually worked very well for me. 
What were some of the things that you discovered through this journey about yourself and about maybe even what your purpose or passion was to be in the future? Yeah, well, I, I, I still don't know if I what I want to do when I grow up. I'll, I'll answer that. Well, we um, all are that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you've, However, written a, you've written a smashing book on your way there. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I, I did decide that I wanted to share my story. That was one of the initial things I discovered on the Camino. I quickly uh, realized that it was a, a, an incredible journey, and it, it's so rich in uh, history and, and the uh, uh, social part of it that that aspect is really unusual, too. Uh, and that was the first thing that really affected me, is I, I felt uh, out there I was kind of stripped of some internal barriers, and I was able to reconnect with humanity. And I, I found that that's, that was a huge obstacle that I was able to get past. How many people end up going on this pilgrimage every year? Wow. The, uh, it, it is just now coming back to the numbers that, that we're walking at in the Middle Ages, and that number's uh, getting close to 300,000 annually. Wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yes. Uh, it, it, you know, obviously, mostly it's European. Uh, I, I met you know, people from Japan and North Korea all over the world. Uh, it, it's really an amazing cross-section of the planet Earth. Uh, and you kind of, uh, you have to catch yourself because, you know, you, you, you know I, I was very judgmental. I would get a first impression. And I found out on the Camino I was usually wrong. So I had to get over that. Yeah, I bet. Is it more of a backpack tent thing? Kind of explain to the audience exactly what you're doing to this in terms of roughing it. You're not staying in a and b and all that along the way, are you? No, uh, but, you know, you, you, if you can imagine 300,000 people camping out along the way, it would make quite the mess. So what they have is uh, over the last thousand years, they've developed a system of uh, uh, hostels. They're called albergues. And it's, it's nothing fancy. I mean, uh, it's, it's essentially an open bay barracks for the most part. Uh, but they're very cheap. They, they limit how much they can charge. And uh, so basically you end up with a, a roof over your head and a bunk bed, uh, hopefully without bed bugs. <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot of them have uh, kitchens so you can, you can uh, you know, prepare your own food and save money that way. It, it's pretty inexpensive and it's pretty well organized. And you're now doing this twice a year with veterans? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm actually leaving next month uh, with, with a veteran that we've uh, vetted and, and selected to participate in this program. And my plan is, this is the first one for my organization, Veterans on the Camino. Uh, I am planning to do a follow-on one next fall as well. So, yeah, I'll be walking uh, a thousand miles a year. Wow. I don't know why this sounds like heaven to me, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I you could... know, I have, a, I have a theory that there isn't much that hasn't been explored or, or conquered. And perhaps perhaps the uh, human condition or in our DNA is that we like to explore and conquer stuff. And perhaps that's what's wrong with, with a lot of society these days. And that to me just sounds like one of those challenges that just has to be done, you know. I, it, it is worth doing. And I, I don't think I, many, many people have tried to write books or explain what it is that makes the Camino so incredible. And I, I think that uh, everybody's failed in that. It's something you have to experience. It, it isn't just a hiking trip. It's much more than that. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. It sounds like you have a real opportunity, like you said, to experience brotherhood, sisterhood all over again in a non-combat environment to really explore more about who you are and kind of find yourself perhaps along the way. 
Absolutely. The other part of that is uh, the internal journey that, that you're kind of forced to deal with. Uh, there's there's three basic portions of the Camino. The first one is, is pretty tough physically. So your, your body's getting used to walking eight hours a day. Uh, and, and so you go through a lot of a lot of pain, you know, getting used to that blisters, you know, hopefully not. But you uh, definitely sore muscles, tired. And once your body becomes accustomed to that, you go into a second portion which is mostly uh, what they call the meseta, the, the flat plains. And the trail becomes very straight and flat and featureless. And it, with that, you just kind of find yourself going on the inside all day, every day. And, uh, you know, things just kind of rise to the surface that you maybe have had buried for a long time. And you, you're forced to condemn with that. And then the last portion of it is pretty much your enjoyment. You go through some of the most beautiful country uh, in a region called Galicia, and uh, uh, you, you just find yourself able to enjoy every little thing. And so that's the three basic parts of it that most people go through. And it's interesting yeah. that you described it in such a way that you actually go through three different phases of not just terrain, but of finding yourself throughout this journey. Absolutely. That's crazy. I can see where a lot of veterans would actually want to participate in something like this because, again, there's a period of time when they come back where it's hard to jump right into it. And if they have the time and the freedom and, of course, the money or whatever to belong to something like this, it gives them that opportunity to to maybe find themselves before they come back and reassimilate. You almost want to do it directly out of a deployment uh, situation rather than having them ETS or retire out of the military and jump right into the, the you know civilian workforce and then have to jump back into it again you know, type of thing. Uh, it would be a fantastic transition program. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, a lot of the guys are in shape as well. But when you're talking about this type of trek, I can definitely see that people, not everybody is going to be conditioned for this type of strenuous activity, like you'd mentioned. You, you almost you can need see to yourself prepare. waking up three or four days into it and then looking around and wondering where you've left your, your <laughs> rifle or, you know. <laughs> Oh, you find yourself, dude, you, you find yourself muttering cadence to yourself. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> to go yeah. Oh, we've all got yeah, that happy right place to. you've got to go to. <laughs> you do a lot of that, looking for that happy place. Uh, and there's times, yeah. I, you know, honestly, a number of times that I, I stopped and I was like, what am I doing here? I, I should just go to the nearest town, find a bus station and get the heck out of here. I, I, I don't know why I'm doing this. And uh, But you just keep plugging away, and that's part of it is um, – you know, just pushing, pushing through that. And, yeah, and through that doubt is where your strength comes, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, you know what they say: embrace the suck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot. We say that a lot. Yeah, no, but it sounds like something like you said that there is more of just the physical side, the spiritual side, the connection or reconnection that you felt like maybe perhaps you've lost, the finding of humanity. I, you know, you mentioned that a lot, and then. At the last phase there, you'd have the opportunity to just really experience the beauty that's around you and realize where you now fit in. Whether it, whether you know exactly what your purpose is, at least now you may find a way uh, as, an, as an experience maybe to find grounding or you've, you're now grounded, which is some of the things we might find is that we feel like we have uh, lost our tether. You know, we, we've lost that grounding. Sure. Absolutely. You, you find that, that you know, you're, you do have common allies with the human race. You, you're able to kind of step back from, from, you know, this intense, you know, velocity you've been living your life 
and it forces you to simply slow down, connect with people and appreciate. And you develop some great friendships along this you know, month of walking. And uh, it, it's surprising that that's, you know, it just happens that the right people you'll meet at the right time who ask the right questions and uh, exactly what you need. They say the Camino provides, and it's very true. Not always what you want, but what you need. Yeah. So are you totally checking out as well as in terms of any type of contact with family, Wi-Fi, those types of things? Or how, how much are you actually getting into this in terms of disconnecting? The first time I walked that I did, I, I totally unplugged. I, I wanted nothing to do with anybody. That's what I thought. Uh, so I, I told everybody, hey, I'm vanishing. And I, I, I didn't really communicate at all. However, uh, there is Wi-Fi all along the Camino. And it, it's very easy to stay in touch. Uh, in fact, I, I go there on one-way flights, uh, and I wait till I'm about halfway done before I plan my return flights. So uh, that takes the pressure off of, of worrying about having to make it to Santiago by a certain day. Uh, you walk as fast or as, as slow as you want. And um, But, yeah, you, you don't have to unplug. I don't recommend people use iPods or things like that because you're potentially missing an opportunity to meet somebody who's – you know, very interesting or, and also your, your mood is influenced by music. So I, um, I stay away from that kind of thing. I just listen to what's around me. So electronics, I, I stay away from, but yes, you can, uh, keep up with things, pay bills, you know, uh, Skype with your family. You can do all that stuff. Yeah. It's interesting that you said about playing music because a lot of people, of course, when they exercise tend to put headsets in and, and they believe they're kind of checking out, but on a journey like this, seems like you'd really want to be into the moment so that you can experience what's happening right now. I'll tell you right away, uh, a lot of people don't agree with my philosophy on that. I'm a little bit hardcore with my stance on it, though. <laughs> Does that mean you rip the headsets off of people and tell them to <laughs> be here now? <laughs> I thought about it, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. What made you all of a sudden decide to write this book? What was it about the journey that said, okay, I now need to share my own experience with the world. Mm. Yeah, I was, uh, I, Pamplona is one of the, uh, that's the first city you come to, really. And, you know, it's about a week into it. And, um, and I, I knew by that point that, that, like I said, this journey was, was going to be something out of the ordinary. Uh, there, there was going to be life-changing. So I determined then that I was going to take careful notes, keep a journal, uh, write things down as they occurred to me. And I felt like I wanted to share my story, uh, not as another Camino book, which there's plenty of, but the Camino from the perspective of a, a, a veteran uh, who had just recently been in Afghanistan and, and uh, been through some of those traumatic experiences. And I wanted to uh, hopefully reach out to, to some of these veterans that are struggling and say, hey, you know, here's an alternative. You don't have to go uh, get a prescription to... Uh, play on the symptoms you're having. Here's a way to actually go to the root of what's bothering you and, and work on it. No, I think that's a great approach to it because I think what a lot of people end up doing, of course, is trying to find themselves is part of the reason why they're struggling because they're a new individual, not to mention some of the people that's surrounding them, family, friends, and such, don't see them as the same person as they were before they left in, in combat or deployment. And so it's these two struggles that this individual is having. And in, at least in talking to a lot of people who struggle with PTSD, it sounds like a, a lot of the things that they end up dealing with as well is the counselors that 
perhaps don't understand this same situation because they have not experienced it themselves. And so they end up doing what most counselors do and prescribing medication. And then once you start taking medication, it may start other physical problems where you're now taking medication to counter those medical problems that the first medication has caused. And it, it ends up exasperating the whole situation. I can definitely see where if there is an opportunity where you could just check out mentally for a moment and experience what's around you and find yourself, I can see it being very healing. And the fact that you're not necessarily in your normal environment, you're in an environment like Spain where you're not accustomed to being in that type of, whether it's language, surroundings, all those types of things that provide you that opportunity to really, you know, experience it if you allow that to happen. Yeah, you've got to get yourself out of your comfort zone, and, and it's taking that leap of faith. That's an important part of it. I, I think you pointed that out pretty well. Uh, you, you have to kind of take that step, and, and you know, that leap of faith is really important for, for this process. And, uh, yeah, it, it's – I'm teamed up with the uh, doctor, Heather Warfield, and a, a psychologist, and so she's doing actually the clinical study portion of this program. And uh, it, this, this is her passion. This is what she does. So there is a, an actual study that's being conducted on this uh, as an alternative to uh, other types of treatments. Wow. That's... I love how it's an alternative, but realistically, it's, it's the approach that's being used for, you know, millennia. Because the, the, the issue we have now is that people, people are involved in traumatic experiences and then they they don't talk about it and they bottle it up and then they go through the rest of their deployments. Whereas we had, you know, on killing and on combat with oh, the Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman. Dave Grosman talks about, um, you know, being able to talk immediately after an incident and that's the best form of counselling. So actually talking about those incidents, talking about what's happened and then we don't do that, we bottle it up then guys go and get medication when they finally do go and see a psychologist as opposed to actually getting it out in the open. And I think what you're talking about, Brad, is, you know, you get on this trail and you, you're stuck there with your thoughts for a while and you actually have to deal with it. You know, that's, that's a great point. Um, this is not a new way of going about this. In fact, a lot of this road was built by Roman legions. So if you can imagine a, this legionnaire... They went and fought this horrendous battle, and then they, you know, walked back on this road that they built. And that time that it took to walk it, well, it's the same as the time that it takes to walk the Camino. You're walking it, uh, and that was their decompression time. It's only, you know, it's always been like that too until recently. So now, uh, that movie, The Hurt Locker, when he uh, goes from Iraq, and 24 hours later, he's walking down an aisle in Walmart looking for cereal, and it simply didn't. It simply didn't calculate it. You, you could see this utter lack of confusion. And I, I think that's a result of not having that time to walk it out, talk it out, uh, and work it out. Yeah. So it's, it's nothing new, but it's, uh, we, we've gotten away from that with technology. Yeah, and you think about those, any of those big battles or anything that, that you've been a part of or any of those big actions and the after-action review, you know, walking walking back to the vehicles or walking back to the pickup point with the helicopter. You're around all, all of your all of the mates, all of your friends have been involved in the same action. You're all talking about it, you know, and then then suddenly you just stop talking about it because now you're back in the barracks, you know, and, and then you're on to the next thing. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the distance that you guys are traveling is simply amazing. I mean, I, you okay. know, some people are going to listen to this and they're going to go, okay, Brad, how come it just can't be, you know, 100 miles? Why why does it have to be so sinking far? You know, I can't find myself in 100 miles. And well, You know what? It, it can be 100 miles. But I, I feel like, like I said, there's three phases to the French Camino, which is the most popular. There are many different Caminos. Uh, the French Camino is, is certainly not the longest. But I, I feel like the French Camino is a, one that's best suited for this program because of those three phases that you go through, because of the Meseta, because of Galicia, because your first day you spend crossing the Pyrenees, and that's, that's a crucible in itself. Well, so that's tough. You can trim it out and just do the 100, but not in my program. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you founded Veterans on the Camino then, how you put that together and who you might be partnered with. You mentioned one, a psychologist that you're working along with, but who are some of the other organizations or stuff that might be supporting you? And then, of course, how can people find out more about that? Well, right now it's in its infancy. Uh, I have a board of directors that includes psychologists, myself, and there's an attorney. So I have a pretty professional board of directors. Uh, other than that, right now, it, it's still very new, very fresh. We're, we're still working on the uh, 501 application, so that'll be in very shortly. Uh, right now, I'm reliant on donations from you know GoFundMe and also on my website. Um, so uh, partnerships-wise, I, I don't have too much of that. It's, it's still, we're still working that out. It's going to take a little time to develop, right. but I'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. Where are some of the ways that people can learn more about Veterans on the Camino in case they want to get involved? Sure. The uh, best way is to go to the website, veteransonthecamino, one word, dot com. And uh, there's there's a blog there. I'll be I'll be I'm going to break my own rule of being, uh, you know, electronic silence. And I'm going to because this is this one's not for me. This is about uh, Tyler, the kid that I'm taking with me. You can read about some of his history, uh, find out why he's going on Camino. He's, he's a great kid. He's having a heck of a hard time. He's struggling. So he's a great candidate for this thing. And I'll, I'll be blogging about him. I've already been kind of introducing him on the website. And I'll, I'll be discussing a few things as we go and, and talking about, you know, places we go, things we see, and, and how he's responding to it. So what, I think after this podcast, you might have uh, a few Australians travel over. Oh, and, that's, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. This is not just American veterans that, that are able to participate in this. Uh, any any of the COVID, I was I was in uh, Fob Gosney and uh, yeah. I was there with the Polish. So. As far as I'm concerned, if you're you know, a coalition veteran, you are more than welcome to apply for this program, and I would I would love to have some different uh, countries represented. Well, you know, Australians love to travel, and the problem is, you put that out there, you might find you've got a lot of Australians on your doorstep, and you know, a thousand miles is nothing for us. Come on. I I know I know. Actually, just last spring, I walked uh, what's called the Camino Norte uh, with with a guy from Australia, and then yeah. uh, just a month ago, he he climbed Mount Everest. So. Wow. Yeah, I know what you're saying. There's a there's a lot to be said for pilgrimages, you know, for for mental health. I think honestly, it's not just about you know I want to go there and deal with some issues that I've had from operational deployments and you know the death or destruction that I've seen and this that and the other. But it's also just one of those things of you know we talked about disconnecting from from you know your your iPhone, your iPod, and your you know your i everything. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's just escaping society 
and just being with yourself for a while because most of us don't even know who we are because we don't sit down and talk to ourselves. You're that bombarded by stimulus. Rob, we're doing this, mate. <laughs> I just want to do it to see Rob broken. Like, I just want to see him hurting. I was going to say, it's the, it's the whole Australian uh, Special Forces, US Ranger sort of rivalry. Let's do this. Right, right. It's great that you're taking Tyler in. Tyler's background is Army, Navy. What, what's his uh, branch? He was in the Army. He was in the Army. Yeah. yeah. He was in the Army. He did two deployments. Uh, one was Iraq. The other was Afghanistan. Uh, he was in for seven years. And uh, you know, he's, he's struggling with a few issues. Well, that'll be mm-hmm. great to read about his journey, your journey with him through your blogs that you're going to be putting out as well. Are there going to be any other video blogs or are they just uh, written or what's your plan? Okay, well, I'm, I'm struggling with technology a little bit, but I'm going to try to put together something that's you know, uh, short and sweet and yet interesting and relevant. Yeah, so, that'll be great. Uh, it, it may be just photos, but... I've always carried a very big, heavy camera with me. This time, I, I think I'm going to rely just on my phone. So we'll see what I can put together. Great. And you've kept you've kept journals most of your career, haven't you, Brad? Like, that's been something you've always done. I have, absolutely. I, I think that's common to, you know, almost everybody in the military is to keep that little journal. And, uh, and that was very relevant. I kept detailed notes in Afghanistan, you know, every mission. Uh, I, I talked about everything, and mostly it was for the logistics of it. You know, uh, when we were talking about the uh, uh, the SMEAC and uh, going through that stuff, it was just a, a matter of course that I was taking notes on on everything. So I had a great journal from Afghanistan when it came time to, uh, to sit down and write the book. Yeah, and so on the trail, you keep a daily journal, or on the Camino, no, it, it's really, I keep it in my pocket. It's very handy. And, and as something occurs, I just sit down and write it down. I mean, there's there's wow. uh, no reason to wait to the end of the day. I just I just keep it going whenever I feel like it. Sometimes I won't write it all one day. Yeah. Uh, I think a journal is a great thing for anybody to have, and especially somebody that's going through what you're talking about or an individual that's going and coming back from a deployment. I think it can really be beneficial. I, I've kept the journal as well. I think it's one of the great things. I'm also on Facebook. You can look up Brad Genero and you'll, you'll find my author page on there. Uh, my book, A Soldier to Santiago, is available on Amazon. And uh, the publisher is working on putting it out in ebook. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's website's the, uh, the central point. You can find it all from there. Sounds great, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and appreciate you taking the time out and good luck on the, the next journey, especially working together with Tyler. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.